Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a melting Macomb, Illinois. The ice has fallen and now it is falling again. If you would stand under a tree, it would be like it's raining on you right now. So a pleasant day outside. Our first episode here in 2021. Happy to be talking with you folks here. Um, we are going to have a fantastic show. We have a special guest with us today. His name's Matt Deusterhouse, and Matt is, well, he's a farmer in West Central Illinois, and we're going to be talking the life of a farmer. But before we get to Matt, we got to introduce our hosts that are here every single week. We are joined by, by Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. First episode after uh, oh, almost a two-week break, so I'm tripping over myself. I forgot my water. I'm so thirsty. Uh, I don't know what to do right now. I'm, I'm a mess, so how about yourself? How are we going to make it through the podcast? Well, you, Ken, and a special guest, Matt. That's going to be the key, the <laughs> ticket. I'm just going to sit back and keep quiet as I reacclimate to uh, being in, in an office. So yeah, but can't, can't complain though. Can't complain. All right, and we will also welcome our other co-hosts here. We have Ken Johnson, horticulture educator. Ken's in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. We're still listening to Christmas music here, so still have the tree up. You won't let that die, will you? No. <laughs> How come? Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was. I have nothing to say. <laughs> How come there's no ice dripping off your trees, Ken? This is a picture from the interwebs. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. sitting outside right now. Although my, my backyard did look similar to this earlier this week. It was actually really beautiful this morning. I think this was the last morning of the ice uh, and snow on the trees. As the sun finally came up, I don't think we've seen the sun for several days. Sun came up, came through the trees. It was an amazing picture. So I'm thankful to see that. But now if I go outside, it's all going to be gone. So mm -hmm. Well, uh, Ken, Katie, we're going to be talking about farming today, the life of a farmer, and we are joined by our special guest, Matt Deusterhouse. Now, Matt, uh, you're a, a, a farmer in West Central Illinois, is that correct? Where, where are you located at? That's right. Um, my family farm is located just north of Quincy, Illinois. All right, just, just north of Quincy. So you're right next to Katie. Katie's just north of Quincy there near Ursa. So um, that, that is uh, amazing to see. And, and so today we want to talk about the life of a farmer. And we kind of put the call out to folks on social media. This is our Ask a Farmer episode. Um, so people have sent in questions to ask Matt. Uh, he's going to help us answer those questions. Um, but first, let's get to know Matt a little bit. So um, you know, tell me, I, I know a lot of different farmers. I've worked with a lot of people, people who have farmed everything from uh, uh, vegetables to trees to there's people who farm fake money online. So Matt, what kind of farmer are you? Uh, so uh, we farm primarily grain, um, corn, soybeans, and a little bit of wheat. Um, every year we do have um, a small amount of livestock on the farm as well with beef cattle um, and hogs as well. So kind of a, you, you do a little bit of everything. And you said this is a, a family farm, correct? So how many generations was it? Right. So um, as far back as I can remember, my grandparents, his father um, started farming in this area. So 
I don't know what that book made, fourth, fifth generation farmer. Um, but yeah, it's been a while. That's a, yeah, a good long span of um, tilling, planting, growing, harvesting. So yeah, very cool, very cool. And I, it's, I'm very happy to see um, you know you here, and you know Katie, right? The you two have met before, actually. Katie's the one who uh, got us in contact with you. How right, did you yeah. guys get to Katie, know each Katie other? Katie and I went to high school together. We grew up through 4-H and FFA, um, kind of both things that probably inspired us, both besides the family farm, um, to continue a career in agri agriculture. Oh, cool. So what high school did you go to down there? Um, Unity High School in Minden. Oh, okay. Well, I'll see. I'm a Blue Devil, so, you know, <laughs> city kid. Matthew and I were um, in FFA the same year, right? I was like a junior and you were a freshman. Yep. And I beat him for the star green hand. It was a very serious competition. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Katie and I go way back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what made you decide to continue in farming, Matt? Um, what was your decision to go into that career? So as I said earlier, um, I think just growing up in 4-H and FFA and you know being part of the family farm early on, I just kind of grew up with that passion and, and wanted to continue that and continue the family farm. You know, a lot of farms today and, and the further we go into the future, there's not someone to continue that within the family. So it's getting leased out um, or sold to investors. And I think it's a part of you know our family, our heritage. And I have the personal passion for raising crops and agronomy um, specifically. So um, I think all of those things kind of just fueled my fire to come back and help on the family farm. Matt, I, I mean, you kind of mentioned how things are getting sold. You're, there's fewer and fewer people to hand off family farms to. And, and I, I mean, I've grown up in rural Illinois all my life, um, but I was never uh, like, uh, we never farmed. We, lived, we had dairy cattle and horses, but never acreage. Um, and I didn't realize how lonely it can be as a farmer, you know, um, in terms of planting and harvesting, a lot of times it's, it's just one person doing a lot of that work there. So do you, are you able to hire out or how do you, how can you supplement at all? Um, cause I know that it's kind of a dwindling, uh, trade even in our neck of the woods. Yeah. So it, it depends a lot on the scale and the individual operation, but you know, there's a lot of farms out there that it's just a one-man band. He does the planting, the spraying, the harvest, um, you know, all himself. And there's there's large-scale operations that have several people on a harvest team, several people on a tillage team, um, several people on a spring planting team, um, and anywhere in between. So um, for our operation, we have usually three to four guys um, helping out at any point in time, depending on where we are in the season. Um, so, um, you know, as operations scale up, they may have to hire out certain jobs like spraying or, um, you know, add some labor at harvest for trucking and to run the grain cart. Um, so there's definitely challenges as you grow, but those challenges prevent um, or provide opportunities as well. Hmm. I'm curious, Matt, are you a, a licensed uh, a pesticide applicator? 
Yes, I am. Aha. Well, then, Katie, if, if do you take the trainings that they do in Quincy uh, every few years? Yeah, so I don't think my license is up for renewal this year, but I'll have to take it again next year. So Katie's probably going to be doing that training, right, Katie, that, that next year? Yeah, hopefully we'll be back in person. So don't tell her you're there, or else she's going to use you as a, probably, she's going to tell the FFA story, I'm sure of it. So, <laughs> you know, you you be careful. So there just you go. a heads up. So along the lines of kind of size of farming. So when you think about farming, we can go from, you know, an urban lot to thousands and thousands of acres, kind of what you've hinted at. Um, what are some of the type of things people would need to invest in to kind of get farming when we're talking about kind of corn and beans? Yeah, so corn and soybeans is is typically an operation that you can't just start from scratch. Um, you know, it takes a lot of equipment. You obviously have to have the land there. The land can be leased, um, which provides a little, I guess, less barrier to entry than if you had to own land. But, you know, typically on an acre of corn and soybeans, it's probably going to take anywhere from maybe five to $800 an acre of inputs, machinery, fuel, you know, total cost put into that operation. Um, so, you know, there's a large investment up front. You know, think of it as taking your salary at the beginning of the year, burying it in the ground, and then hoping to come back in the fall and dig up more than what you buried at the start. That's kind of, in essence, what farming is like. Um, but you don't always have that salary to start the year. So you borrow the money, bury it in the ground, pay interest on that the whole year, um, and then hope for the best in the fall. I mean, the, the capital that it would take for a combine, I know there's a few farmers we're friends with and they bought a brand new um, green combine and they had a special ceremony, a turn the key ceremony. Mm. Uh, up at the plant up in the Quad Cities, and would you believe it? The thing wouldn't turn on. So, oh, no. <laughs> that's kind of like our farm. They <laughs> yeah. spent half, almost half a million dollars on this uh -huh. thing, and you can't get it to start. Oh gosh! Did that at least happen at the plant? It happened at the plant, but it <laughs> was good. like ceremonial. I mean, there was people, uh, ribbons, and it was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> So, I mean, a lot of it's also based on luck, right, Matt? I mean, you got, you're, you're dependent upon things that you can't control at all. Yeah, it's definitely a gamble. There's a lot of things left up to the good Lord and left up to mother nature. Um, but we try to do everything we can to mitigate that risk, whether it's, you know, alleviating compaction, whether it's marketing risk, whether it's, you know, anything out there, there's only so many things that we can manage. Um, so we try to manage what we can control, um, and leave the rest up to the good Lord. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk in a second about kind of what 2020 was like for you, but I'm curious in terms of maybe the last five to 10 years, like has farming been changing? Have you seen new issues popping up and kind of, you know, since you've taken the reins um, on, on your farm there? Right, so, you know, I graduated college in 2016. So I've been helping throughout, but just starting to get more and more involved now. But there's definitely been a lot of changes, you know, in the last 10 years and the last 20 years. Um, it's crazy to think what changes are going to come in the next 10 and 20 years. But technology um, is definitely one of the biggest areas of change um, in recent history with agriculture. 
um, the advent of GPS and auto steering, um, yield mapping, variable rate fertilizer, planting, um, different technology on the planter with meters and drives, electric drives, row shutoffs. A lot of technology has been um, adopted and implemented to you know, lower the wastage of products on an acre um, and try to put those products where they need to be most efficiently. I, I remember as a kid, I'd be able to go into cornfields, which terrifies me now as a parent. I don't want my child going to cornfield. It's like, uh, watch too much movies as a kid. Uh, but anyway, um, but then as I, I think it was, I was a teenager or turn of the century, the spacing of corn shifted dramatically. They improved varieties. So then you could plant denser blocks of corn. And I was just like, holy, holy cow, you almost doubled the amount you could fit in like a square foot. It was pretty, I mean, and that just happened. It felt like overnight, but I mean, it transitioned over a few years. And yeah, I was just, I was very, that's one of the things that really stands out to me. Yeah, so the, not, and not just the, you know, the population or the number of plants per acre has, you know, gone up from maybe 20,000 plants per acre of corn in the you know 80s and early 90s to now a lot of populations are 30 to 35, 36, up to 40,000 mm -hmm. plants per acre. Um, and the, the new technology and the meters has really made the precision of that. Um, we've been able to, you know, almost plant picket fence like stands where the spacing is so uniform um, to allow for that higher population and higher yields. Those yield maps are fun to watch in a combine too. And, mm -hmm. and, and you can almost, you, after it's harvested, you can look out on the landscape, um, the kind of the topography there even, and you can almost compare the two and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally, it, it matches. You're getting lower yield in this uh, low draw area where maybe you have a higher water table, the roots can't establish as well or not as much oxygen. So I, I, yes, I think the technology and everything that's come these last few years is so fascinating. In grad school, we had a, a pamphlet um, that we had hanging in the lab and it was how to achieve yields of a hundred bushels per acre. Um, and Matthew, as you probably know, we're far beyond that. So it's cool to see uh, we've achieved that 100 bushels per acre. As oh, you mentioned ahead. that, you know, my grandpa, I think he's got a plaque in his basement somewhere. It was the record yield in Adams County from, I don't know what year it was, but it was 160 or 65 bushel corn. Um, and we think about that today and that's pretty that's average to maybe even lower than average for what we can expect. Um, Some people might consider it a bad year if you get 160. Right. So what, I guess, what is typical? Um, what's the goal, I suppose? So, you know, last year there was a lot of corn in the 200, 220 range, probably in this county. This year, somewhat similar to lower, probably. Um, but yeah, 200 bushel yield is a good goal for corn um, on average. There's always people pushing for more. What's the record now? Is it 602? Yeah, it's it's in the 600s. It's in the 600s. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, they're growing it with irrigation, and that's in like Virginia or Georgia. Yeah, Virginia and Georgia have kind of been the two leading states with the, the growers out there. But yeah, it tells you how much potential is out there, mm -hmm. um, you know, for that corn. So that's that's a goal to 
not just raise you know 600 bushel corn on a, an acre a 10 acre plot but can we push some of these areas of the field that we know on the yield maps are historically our best part of the field can we get those to move up to 300 bushel to pull that field average up um, overall and then can we focus what can we do in the red areas of the yield map to to bring them up to the 160 to the 200. So I, uh, dwelling on this a little bit, but I, I, now I'm curious as yield and um, bushel per acre go up, you know, you'd supposedly get more money, but you also mentioned new technologies before and new things that you have to buy. So, I mean, it sometimes feel, it, it, does it feel like you're not always getting ahead or can sometimes it, it feel like, well, now I can buy this piece of equipment or I can use this now. How, how does that work? You know, sometimes it feels like you're always behind because you, you kind of get, um, oh, what's the word? Not, not in, encouraged, but you get, you get penalized for producing higher yield because that drives the price down. If everybody in the country produces mm -hmm. a high yield, that raises the supply um, of crop. And then at the end of harvest, you're looking at lower prices, which in the end can equal, um, you know, the same revenue or less or more, just it kind of all depends. But there's, there's two factors to the revenue on the farm and one is yield and one is price and price we really can't control. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can do the best we can through the year to market that grain and, and mitigate risk and use options and futures and, and different types of contracts from a marketing standpoint, but um, you know they both have to go into that. Speaking of prices and difficulties in farming, how was farming during the pandemic? Uh, what challenges did you encounter? So from my personal um, perspective, I think 2020 was a, a really good year for farmers. Um, you know, in West Central Illinois, in this area, we had pretty good yields. Probably the toughest part was the volatility of the markets. Um, you know, just like your retirement accounts, you know, we saw a lot of volatility in the markets um, in corn and soybeans. Um, and so that was a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, from a, from a pandemic perspective, social distancing, it wasn't really hard for farmers because we're already out here with a couple people, you know, you stay in the tractor cab all day when you're planting, you may only come into contact with the person bringing you seed or fertilizer or, um, you know, the grain cart, but really that was pretty simple. Not a lot of changes to take place. Um, some of the bigger operations you maybe had to watch that a certain person was staying with a certain machine and you weren't jumping from one cab to the other. Um, but for the most part, 2020 um, was a really good year for farmers in this area. And on top of that, this fall, we had great weather. Um, dry weather for harvest. We weren't fighting the mud. We weren't fighting compaction. Um, a lot of fall work was able to get done, leveling ditches and doing any fall tillage that needed to be done. So there was a good window this fall um, for that. That was a pretty remarkably dry fall. I, it seemed like at least. And um, I haven't checked the drought monitor net yet. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has, but it before we were looking as though we were in a drought and um, without this most recent rain and snowfall um, to help recharge some of the, that groundwater. I know 
in terms of planting the spring, that could be a significant issue if we go into planting season with dry soil. So I don't know, Matt, is that, even though you're tech, are you like off the clock now in the winter time? What do you do in the winter? Yeah, so, you know, in terms of the moisture, it's definitely been really dry, but, um, you know, it's hard to complain about that. Um, we like to go into the spring with a full tank of moisture, but we know that it takes a long time to establish dry or drought conditions, and you can turn really wet and muddy almost overnight. So, mm-hmm. um we're not forecasting a drought or, or thinking that it's going to be a drought at this point by any means. Um, but yeah, the winter time, you know, for farmers, a lot of that time is spent working on equipment, um, getting things ready, uh, maybe repairing stuff that from fall work, combines, tillage equipment, um, getting that stuff put away for the year, um, and then bringing planters, sprayers, spring tillage equipment um, into the shop and starting to get that stuff, um, you know, prepared and ready for the spring. So on top of that, you know, looking at your yield maps, having meetings, um, you know, learning some of that new technology that's coming out, learning what, what improvements you can make to your equipment, to your operation, to your practices. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of management decisions that get made in the winter. Um, so there's de- the farmers definitely aren't sitting that de- sitting idle this time of year. It is slow compared to the spring and fall, but there's a lot of decisions getting made now. So speaking of of kind of learning stuff, and when you have problems and stuff, where do you, where does a farmer typically turn to? Is it more private or kind of public type things like extension? Yeah, so it it depends on the farmer, and it depends on you know what your what the problem is. So definitely extension is a good resource. Um, for a lot of things, um, you know, you can go to the internet nowadays to find, find quite a bit of things if you've got a farmer that's not adept or able to, you know, uh, like my dad, he, he's never turned on a computer, so he's not going to be one to go to the internet. He'll go to the, to the dealership or to, you know, other farmers in the area and kind of exploit their resources. What have they seen in the same situation? So, there's a lot of different avenues to get information. Um, so kind of just depends on the farmer. Any f- growing podcast, that would be another great um, location to go for. And <laughs> yeah, they got a really cool guest on this week, I hear. So. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, good growing. We, in addition to, to learning about our special guest for this week, we are also a question and answer show. Uh, and so we did solicit uh, the, the wide world of extension in the internets and the offices and such uh, about questions for a farmer. It's the Ask a Farmer segment here. So um, Matt, would you mind helping us answer some of these questions that have come in this last few weeks? Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Fantastic. Well, Katie, why don't you go ahead, since you know Matt so well, we're just really going to put his feet to the fire here. Uh, why don't you start him out with our first question, please? Absolutely. So our first question comes from Knox County. This um, person is asking, Illinois seems to lag behind other states when it comes to cover crop usage. Why and will we start seeing more cover crops being used? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, there's been a lot of hype in the agricultural world about cover crops in the past, you know, five to 10 years. And 
One thing that cover crops are really great at is reducing erosion. Um, so we can see them hold the soil, get those roots established and protect um, soil from washing away. Um, you know, one of the areas that that benefits most um, is on steep sloped ground. Um, so the more slope you have, the more prone it is to erosion. So that's an area where cover crops can be a, um, really beneficial in controlling that erosion. If you take flat ground like central Illinois, um, even up in the Macomb area or in river bottoms, et cetera, um, you know, we don't have that much erosion. And so you don't get the, the erosion benefit from that cover crop. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other benefits out there, but it's, um, you know, you always have to weigh the pros and the cons. And a lot of the benefits of cover crops are hard to put a price on, um, you know, soil health, um, you know, increasing organic matter, reducing erosion, those things, it's, it's somewhat difficult to put a hard number on. But one thing that's easy to put a number on is the yield difference. So if we split a field or have a check strip with a cover crop and we see a, a four or five bushel difference, um, then it's pretty easy to know that, um, you know, what that's costing us. So it cost us 30 or $40 an acre to put in that cover crop. So we need for corn, we may need, you know, a 10 bushel gain to recoup that cost. Um, if we're not considering any of the other benefits. If we get a 10 bushel loss from that cover crop um, and the challenges it, that it posed, then all of a sudden you, it cost you $40 plus you lost $40 in your corn yields and now you're $80 in the hole. So that's been kind of a barrier to cover crops all along the way. I'm not saying that there's places that they don't work and work well, um, like livestock operations. If you can incorporate the cover crop as erosion control plus feed um, for your livestock and on top of that maybe double crop soybeans or something behind it then it's a, an, an extremely good fit. There can yeah. be some issues with establishment as well correct so if we don't get our crop out soon enough it can be difficult to get it established enough and so if you've spent that money uh, on the cover crop and you're not able to get it to grow you're not really going to get um, much of an effect from it, especially if it's one that's not going to overwinter. Right, when the, you know, farming is a business and if the primary um, revenue source of that business is the cash crop, then anything that hinders that cash crop can be a negative to the business. So there's just a lot of things that you have to take into consideration. And I would say that profit-wise, that's probably the main reason my cover crops have been, haven't been adopted widespread by everyone on every acre is, you know, if it, if it was profitable every time, everybody would be doing it um, on every acre, but it's not. So that's why you see it um, more in some areas than in others. So how I deal a lot in um, commercial landscaping, we always say there's no such thing as a, a property that's the same. You can't, you can't take a rubber stamp necessarily and do the same thing every day. And you're saying something similar that, you know, you really have to look and go by a farm by farm basis upon, is this practice suitable for your operation? And I've also, so an interesting fact that I tell people all the time, 
And this, you can use this at your next trivia party or cocktail party, Super Bowl coming up. Um, the second flattest state is Illinois. First flattest state, Florida. So there you go. Topography wise, central Illinois, uh, God's bulldozer came through and flattened it out. Um, I lived in Kansas for five years. That's not flat. No, you got to live in Adams County or McDonough County and you'll see flat there. So I did not know that. I've lived in the two flattest states. Then. There you go. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought Illinois would be the second flattest. Yeah. It's central Illinois. I mean, we're, we're the ones making us number two there. So, you know, we're, we're pulling our weight. All right. Our next question comes from Northern Illinois and they have a little more elevation up there. Um, they've heard some fall tillage described as recreational tillage um, or something board farmers do in the fall. So why do we see so much tillage going on during the fall? So, yeah, that's, you know, there's definitely cases where, um, you know, it may look like that, but usually when tillage is being done, there's a goal in mind, um, whether it's alleviate some compaction or incorporate residue to lower the amount of disease in the following crop um, or to ease the plantability of that crop. So when you've got a lot of residue or, you know, in the past it's been called trash, there's a lot of trash in the way when you're planting, um, you know, that can cause problems with stand establishment. So I'd say the main reasons for tillage, um, you know, is alleviating any compaction, incorporating residue, and then also helping the soils warm up in the spring and dry out to facilitate um, that planting. So if a ground's not, or if land's not tiled with drainage, there's no way for water to escape from the subsurface um, through the tile. So it's basically, you need to evaporate off the top in order to get that dry enough to work. So Matt, I've also heard that some of the new corn genetics, even the residue takes longer to break down or it can be a little bit more difficult to break down. Is that true? Do you see that with some of the newer uh, breeds of corn that are getting uh, planted? So there has been talk about that with uh, like the BT hybrids that have stronger stocks um, due to being somewhat more resistance um, to insects. I don't know if there's research on that specifically that show that it's, it breaks down slower or faster, um, but definitely with higher yields, there's more residue to break down um, and the quality of that residue can be different. So um, Definitely, it's another thing that differs from field to field. So if you're growing 120 bushel corn, there's gonna be a lot less residue in that field than if you're growing 240 bushel corn, there's a lot more residue to break down. Um, so sometimes light tillage passes can be done to sort of chop up the residue into smaller pieces and then uh, more aggressive tillage to sort of work that into the soil profile. So our next question comes from Morgan County and they are wondering what are those big white tanks that we see, there you go, um, being hauled around often in the fall, sometimes in the spring, and what is that used for? Yeah, so um, the white tanks typically are carrying anhydrous ammonia. It's a source of nitrogen fertilizer for uh, mainly corn that is um, you know, the total product is 82% nitrogen. So it's one of the most concentrated forms of nitrogen we have. 
um, which usually makes it um, one of the cheapest forms of nitrogen that we have as well. So economic wise, it's a good source to use. Um, in the fall, it's the best source of any nitrogen to use when you're applying in the fall because it's applied as ammonia um, and it's more stable in the soil versus a liquid nitrogen that could be leached through the profile. So applying anhydrous in the fall, um, you know, actually we've, we've got some plots and some studies that we're looking at this year and next year on different ways to apply nitrogen you know, splitting your application with fall anhydrous and spring nitrogen, um, different combinations out there to try to evaluate what's the best on this particular field. Um, but yeah, the white tanks are, are usually carrying anhydrous ammonia. Now, we know that nitrogen is fairly mobile in the soil. Is it a good idea to apply nitrogen in the fall or is it better to wait in the spring? Is there anything that you can do to protect that nitrogen? Uh, to keep it from being leached or lost for our next yeah. growing season? So nitrogen as nitrate is fairly mobile in the soil. As ammonia um, or ammonium, it's not that mobile. So that's why, why the fall nitrogen is getting put on as ammonium or anhydrous ammonium. Um, there are inhibitors that can be used. And a lot of times, um, I would guess over 90% of fall nitrogen goes out with in something like inserve, which is a nitrification inhibitor that keeps the, keeps the nitrogen in that ammonium form that's not mobile. Um, when we come into the spring, that anhydrous ammonium gets converted to nitrate by microbes in the soil. So the inserve kind of preserves it um, in the ammonium form until we get to where that crop needs it. But there's challenges there as well, because if you apply too soon when the soils are warm, you can use up that inhibitor to where it can convert to nitrate, and then you can be more susceptible to loss over the winter. All right, so our next question comes from Greene County. Uh, they would like to know, what are the planes spraying on the fields in the summer? See them buzzing across the roads and stuff like that. Yep, so 90 plus percent of the time, that's gonna be a fungicide. Um, they can spray fungicide on corn or soybeans, but um, a lot of times that's what's going out through the plains. There can be some foliar fertilizers or some insecticides if those are warranted, um, but primarily um, they're gonna be foliar fungicides um, to control disease and promote plant health in corn and soybeans. We actually saw aerial applicators early fall um, this year and they were planting, I think it was tillage radish. Um, they were, they were sowing it by air, which that was pretty cool. Because, uh, you know, you're, you get used to seeing them in the summer, but then they pop up in the fall and you're like, what, what are these, what are the planes doing right now? There's nothing going on. Yep. Yeah. That's one of the challenges with cover crops and, and the farther you go north, it's more of a challenge, but getting that cover crop established before it's too cold in the winter. Um, so one of the ways they combat that is, is seeding with an airplane into a standing crop to sort of get that relay started. Um, so then after you harvest the cash crop, the cover crop's already growing. It was neat to see. And I would, I, I didn't know where the field was. It was across the railroad tracks, across the highway here, but I wanted to see how well did it establish? I wanted to see the pattern that was created by that, but we never got a chance to go out yeah. there. 
our success rate with aerial seeding is, has probably been less than 50%. So, oh, wow. um, you know, you can just imagine scattering seed over the surface versus <laughs> tucking it into the ground at the proper depth with good seed to soil contact. There's going to be quite a bit difference. It can work. Aerial seeding can work if you get, you know, timely rains. But again, you're leaving more up to Mother Nature if you mm -hmm. just aerial apply versus um, if you can, you know, drill that in or something, plant it um, into the soil. Our next question comes from Facebook. So they keep hearing about soil loss and degradation. What are Illinois farmers doing to help protect the land to ensure we can keep farming in the future? And so soil loss and degradation, um, you know, that can be several different things, whether it's erosion or soil health, um, compaction, loss of organic matter. There's a lot of different things um, that that could be. I would say, you know, most Illinois farmers, most any farmers don't want to see that happen, right? That's the that's the avenue that their business runs on. That's, um, you know, the land is providing fertility, nutrients. And if they don't take care of the land, it won't take care of them. Um, so nobody intentionally wants to lose that soil. So things like minimum tillage, um, you know, moving to less tillage if it's not needed, uh, maybe just one pass in the fall versus two, or maybe just one pass in the spring um, that can, reduce some of those effects. Doing tillage in a no-till system can promote soil health. Um, if you have compaction, um, you're gonna be better off getting air into that soil so the microbes, the roots can breathe and grow better um, than if you've got a compacted no-till farm. So it's not a one size fits all. Um, but yeah, most farmers are trying to take care of that um, and do the best they can. So on the soil health, have you ever buried underwear in your soil to see if it breaks down? I have not. I don't remember what that test is called, but uh, yeah, I've seen it. As there, there you go. That's your uh, one of your research studies for this year. We can uh, just take some some Hanes tidy whities, put it somewhere in a couple plots. Yeah, soil your undies. I think is what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Our last question um, also comes from social media. Uh, so Dicamba has been making the news the last few years. Uh, Illinois Department of Ag has increasingly gets reports of herbicide drift um, onto other fields, uh, fruit and vegetable growers, landscapes, nurseries, residential areas, um, you name it. Uh, last year, a court removed the label from use, but now it looks like the EPA is approving a new one. What do farmers think about this? Um, is it a good tool? Um, is it destined to lead to resistance like a lot of other herbicides um, have? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the end resistance wise, um, you know, there's already resistance to dicamba and to 2,4-D and, and those types of herbicide. But with that being said, there's still a good tool in areas where they're not resistance. So if that's the only tool that you're using, yes, you're probably going to develop resistance a lot quicker. But if you're using that tool um, kind of as an integrated approach with other weed management, um, you know, tactics like tillage or like multiple modes of action, um, crop rotation, stuff like that, then all of a sudden, you know, you can slow that development of resistance and preserve that technology. Um, so I think most farmers recognize its effectiveness and its, um, its usefulness as a tool in that system. How you feel about it probably depends on what side of the fence you've been on. Um, 
you know, if you've drifted on somebody else or if they've drifted on you, um, I know there's a lot of, a lot of feelings in that arena. Um, but as I see it, um, as a consultant and as a farmer myself, you know, I think it is a good tool. We just have to make sure that we, we apply it correctly and take all the necessary precautions and use it as an integrated approach um, in our weed management strategy. Yeah, Matt, I, I mean, I talking to farmers, I hear the same thing that you both sides of the spectrum, you know, some are like, everyone should use it, then we won't have a problem. Others are like, I'll never use this no matter what I ever do. And then there's the farmers right in the middle that say, I'm going to use it to knock down this troublesome population, um, you know, and then I'm going to rotate through this every few years, you know, so they, they're coming up with like, a plan, like you just said, an integrated pest management plan um, to utilize this tool because, you know, you're right, you probably will lead to resistance, but the better we can use, utilize this as an integrated approach, the longer we will have this as a tool. So I think, yeah. It, it, so do you know, Matt, is it is this going to be something that will be used this coming growing season with the new label coming out? Yeah, so it has been registered in Illinois now. Um, it's There's a federal label and there's an Illinois label. I'm not sure if they've ironed out all the specifics on the Illinois label. Um, you know, in the past, there's been higher restrictions on um, when you can spray. Um, there's been more restrictions mm -hmm. for Illinois than there has been on the federal label. So the Illinois EPA is trying to take steps to mitigate the number of problems and complaint calls and drift issues um, with this product. And in the, in the past, every applicator had to take special training that year. Is Are they going to have to redo that training? Have you heard or is I it? I believe so. I okay. believe there'll be a new training because it was an annual based mm -hmm. training for that product. Yeah, those were, were incredibly popular. You know, we would have 200 people show up for a pesticide applicator training and then 500 people show up for the uh, dicamba uh, extend max uh, trainings that they held after that so i mean they're because yeah, they are required uh you know for uh, applicators to take those so very controversial here and uh yeah i think that's uh, a good place for us to kind of end off Ken, Katie, don't you think? Let's end on a note of controversy so we can get ready to talk to our, our big boss next week, the Dean, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. There you go. I, and I also, you know, in terms of like cover cropping, opinion-wise here, you know, I think that's a place where extension could really serve a useful role um, uh, as the risk taker to do some of that research and partner with farmers and kind of uh, uh, kind of shoulder more of that risk instead of having uh, farmers kind of figure it out as they go along. So I, yeah, I think, I think extension, we could play a bigger role in that. So hopefully we will. And so Ken, make sure you say that to the Dean next week, write that down. I'll we'll just invite Matthew back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got a pretty good cover crop guy up there at WIU. Oh yeah. You want to talk yeah. to Dr. Groover. He, he's always and got Dr. a lot of good information on cover crops. Dr. Fippen's trying to use pennycrest as a cover crop, which has some potential. Yeah, yep. we've got some farmers trying to use that as well. I don't know if they're using I think it for it the same purpose. Works pretty natural as well. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I've noticed the winter annuals that germinate like pennycress. Yeah. They do just fine in the farm fields because don't you, you just plow them under in the spring, right? And then they're... Right. Or spray them. Yeah. We actually had a girl do a, um, a cover crop uh, for her thesis, for her master's thesis. She did a cover crop study and she couldn't get any of the cover crops to germinate. All she, that germinated were weeds and the weed plot was the best control. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I think like the fields, I know driving through Adams County, there's some that just get full of uh, henbit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just purple in the spring. That's so cool to see. And yeah, you just till them under and then no problem. So, well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the Ask a Farmer episode here. I mean, so you, you lend a, a really a unique and a valuable perspective here uh, to our questions because we just keep talking all these extension people. I mean, that's we don't have that much else to say. So I'm glad to finally talk to someone out in the field. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I always like the opportunity to help educate the public and understand what it is that we do, because we know there's a lot of questions out there, but, you know, there's nothing better than hearing it straight from the horse's mouth on, you know, what we're doing and what we're seeing out there. So definitely like to get those questions answered. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks goes out to Katie Parker, Ken Johnson, for being our intrepid co-hosts and navigating us through the topic of this week of agriculture, which kind of is every week, isn't it? So yeah, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Matt, Chris, Ken. Thank you, Chris and Matt and Katie. And uh, let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall, but I'm terrified of it because we're going to be talking to the Dean of the College of Aces, the the big head honcho, the boss uh, here uh, that signs all our paychecks. So uh, we will be chatting with Dean Kim Kidwell next week about all things extension, what's happening on campus, what's life like for a dean during the year of 2020, now 2021, midst of a pandemic. So we're looking forward to talking with Dean Kidwell. Uh, I might call in sick next week, but everyone, listeners, thanks for doing what you do best, and that is listening, or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching, and as always, keep on growing.